for tuning into the 20th episode of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. If you or somebody that you know is struggling with pornography addiction or compulsive sexual behavior, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com. There you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. And uh, I truly wish that I, well, I don't wish, I'm glad I don't film um, the intro there because my hand, I don't even know what I'm doing with my hands. I'm I'm pointing out the number five with the five ebook. I think I did 20, um, 20th when I did the 20th episode. And there's some sort of thing that makes me look like I'm trying to be, I guess, some sort of hip hop or rap guy um, with what my hands are doing right now. And they're still doing them uh, as I'm as I'm talking. Um, but I want to debut something new here. There There is no guest. I'll go ahead and give you a heads up there. Um, and the irony here is that the more people that listen to the virtual couch, which again, I am so grateful for, the more feedback I receive and the more questions I'm asked and uh, specifically asking um, if I can answer some certain things on the podcast. And yet the, uh, the more guests now that I want to book um, and the longer the interviews go, so the questions and answers actually get neglected. So I have this, uh, this big stash of Q&As that I want to get to. And um, so I thought I would try to do something um, maybe like a smaller episodes, a little quick episode, something like today. I'm recording this um, bright and early on a Monday morning. Actually, it's not bright yet, kind of dark and early on a Monday morning. And uh, hopefully I can I can get the, the Monday going well, just hit on some questions that I get more than any other. When, uh, when I started listening to podcasts way back in the day, there's a sports podcast, a guy named Bill Simmons uh, that I just loved. And he would do what he called a mailbag. So um, with a, an homage to the original sports guy, Bill Simmons. I think this will be my first attempt at a mailbag. So let me call this the Monday Mailbag. And before I get to that, let me just um, give a quick word from our sponsor, Eli's Extracts. Been here for all 20 episodes. And Eli's makes an all-natural organic shaving cream scented with essential oils. And you can find out more at Eli's, E-L-I-S-Extracts.com. And if you use the coupon code Virtual Couch, you get 25% off your entire order, regardless of how size that order, uh, how big that order is, what size it is. And um, the folks at Eli's have told me that they've gotten a tremendous amount of feedback from virtual couch listeners. So thank you for that. And with that said, they are coming up with some big things. That's all I know. Big things. And in anticipation for the big things, they have sent me a uh, tremendous amount of fun facts about shaving. So I want to tackle four of them because one of them really rung a bell to me. Uh, Here's some fun facts. It's estimated that 90% of all adult males shave at least once a day. It's also estimated that a man will shave at least 20,000 times in his lifetime. uh, That is an an incredible number. The average American male begins to shave between the ages of 14 and 16 years of age. That's the one that kind of kind of uh, rung true to me. I remember I was uh, I had to go back and do the math. I was 14 and I was watching the Winter Olympics to take this manly step of shaving, but uh, I went right into the bathroom, grabbed I think some disposable razor, some sort of foaming gel or foaming uh, shaving cream and then cut my lip, I think in five distinct areas across my top lip, um, cut my chin, cut my sideburns each and just looked like uh, like I'd been in a horrible fight with a cat when I got to school the next day. And the last one, too, that I was going to share today, I thought this was interesting. Shaving, tweezing, or waxing does not cause hair to grow back thicker or fuller, um, which I think is always kind of fun. So if I let my beard grow out a little bit, and, um, I have you know those little ingrown hairs. My wife loves to just pick those things out. She's probably not happy that I'm sharing that. Uh, but uh, those are some fun facts about shaving. So big things coming from Eli's Extracts. And again, use that coupon code Virtual Couch on their site, Eli's-Extracts.com, and get 25% off your order. All right, let's get to 
the mailbag. But actually, I'm going to mix up the questions a little bit here. This was one that I was going to hold and see if I got to uh, time. I also, for the first time ever, started the stopwatch that I have every single time I do an episode. So I'm going to try to keep this one nice and tight. Uh, But the whole skin thing, the ingrown hair thing, that just reminded me. There's a question that I honestly have gotten quite a bit that... uh, um, that I just haven't really, um, I've just kind of ignored, but, uh, and again, I'm setting this up like it's something dramatic, but apparently if you go Google my name, um, for people that have tried to find the, uh, the, the podcast, um, it's funny. I'll have people say, Hey, I love that virtual lounge, you know, and, and I kind of, I think I know what they're talking about, but so the virtual couch has apparently been uh, kind of butchered a lot when people don't have it right at the tip of their tongue. But if you Google me, um, one of the first pictures that comes up is me basically looking like my entire face is a scab. And, um, and so I've had a couple people say, wait a minute, is that you or what happened? Or, you know, uh, are you okay? And, um, so just a quick trip down memory lane for about 10 years, I had a humor column in a local newspaper. And so, um, once, uh, the, the internet kind of came around, I started putting all my columns up on a blog. This was when blogs were, were new, shiny and new, kind of cool. And so then having that kind of blog, that, uh, that audience, and I was also, that was when I first got into ultra running and, um, I was lucky enough to get uh, sponsorship with, um, Brooks shoes. And part of that deal was that I would write all these race reports. So I would go run these long races and I would write a race report and then I had this humor column going. And then I would also then use that from time to time to just blog about things. So, uh, I had some, some kind of little, um, I felt like they were always scabs talk about sh- shaving. And I felt like I was always picking off these little scabs or shaving over these little scabs on my, uh, kind of around my sideburn area. And then there were some on my head when I started shaving my head and then they would just come back. And so I finally went and saw a dermatologist when I was actually on a a vacation in Tennessee. It was a family friend of my parents and he, um, identified that those were a thing called actinic keratosis. And, uh, so those are these rough scaly patches of skin that actually they develop after, I mean, we're talking years and years of exposure to the sun and they're usually found on your face or, or lips or ears or back of hands or forearms or that sort of thing. But for bald guys, and I mean, I had thin hair my entire life, uh, on my head. That's uh, that's a big place for them. Um, they're also called solar keratosis. Um, but they usually start to, they slowly enlarge and they just have this little dry patch on your skin. And, uh, the, you know, the interesting thing, I pulled up a little bit of info on this and it says they usually start appearing in people over 40 and I was starting to see these things, um, right after 30. And then, so what happens, a small percentage of these actinic keratosis, um, can become skin cancer. So, and, uh, so that kind of was scary, right? And I looked up the percentages and usually it looks like it's uh, less than 5%. I think if left untreated can turn into some sort of skin cancer. But so still, it's it's important to get them. I did, man, I did a deep dive on them. And um, here's the stuff that gets scary when you go into the uh, the most important cause of actinic keratosis formation is solar radiation, specifically UVB radiation. Um, UVB radiation causes, and this says, uh, th- uh, what is it? Thymidine dimer formation in DNA and RNA leading to a significant cellular m- mutation. So that's why it was uh, impressed to me that kind of the cells mutate kind of under the under the you know the subdermal layer and then by the time they make it to the skin um they they just don't uh, they're mutated cells so they just uh, produce these scabs all the time so you go to the dermatologist and you get this liquid nitrogen and so it seemed like every time i would go every six months or a year they would freeze off all these spots on my head and face and uh, they would then a few days later scab up and then eventually go away well, I had enough of those that I finally had a dermatologist suggest a it's a, a chemical, like a topical chemotherapy cream. It's called fluorouracil. And so um, the dermatologist said, you just rub it all over your face. Or I think I was doing my forehead, my head, and then um, like right underneath my eyes, my cheeks. 
And and he said, you know, in a few weeks, it'll start to get really red, kind of maybe get a little scabby, then those scabs will go away. And then your skin will just be wonderful. So I start doing some Googling on it at the time. This was a long time ago. And there wasn't a lot of information there on actinic keratosis. So I decided to um, write about it and then uh, photograph like every few days to see what happened. And man, that, you know, it's like a week or two in, you just have these little spots where all the actinic keratosis, um, where, where those are located. And this fluorouracil is starting to just attack them. I guess it goes down and kills these uh, mutated cells deep down. And then when the those kind of make their way up and they scab and this the, the new cells, these good cells are growing underneath it. So what happens about three weeks into it, all of a sudden, I literally just have a face that is a forehead and face full of it's like one giant scab. You know, at that time, I'm still, I'm seeing clients. I'm, I'm uh, teaching an early morning seminary class and, uh, you know, I'm still trying to do a lot of running and just what a, what a pain that was to just have a face and head full of scabs. But there's some pretty wild pictures up there on the internet that, uh, that show me with that. And the worst part too, is I couldn't shave my head for a while. So I've got all these, um, got this uneven pattern of hair, which is the whole reason I started shaving my head in the first place. Um, that's there. And then I have a bunch of scabs and stuff, but I will tell you, Honestly, I think it, it taught me a little bit more. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's one of those things that just gives you a little more empathy uh, because I remember going to a couple of my son's basketball games. I remember um, you know, just, just going to church or going out in public and, and being really self-aware about just feeling like everybody was looking at me. And, uh, and they were, and, and, you know, and little kids would kind of, you know, not, not like they would recoil, but, uh, just stare And a couple of parents, um, at times said, Hey, don't, you know, don't stare. And I wanted to say, Oh no, no, I'm good. Like this is going to go away. But I just thought, wow, you know, it did give me some empathy. Um, and I started to be a little more aware of people that maybe had some things, uh, facial features that, um, you know, the, the, like the, what do they call them? Wine stains and things like that. Birthmarks on their face, uh, scars, that sort of thing. And just, just being a little more aware of, of not, um, what that's like, what that must be like to have uh, something like that where you feel like, hey, everybody's looking. Um, but then once those scabs go away, then the skin underneath it is just, it's amazing. It's almost like getting, I guess, a chemical peel or facelift or something like that. So, And I think I'm, I'm getting pretty pretty close to due for another one uh, because I'm getting more and more of these little actinic keratosis spots popping up. Um, that is a lesson to use sunscreen early. I don't, I don't even mess around now. Hat everywhere I go. And I think the daily stuff I use has... Uh, has uh, sunscreen in it. Okay, let's get to this one's a fun question. So this is uh, question number two. Um, is it normal for parents to have a favorite child? I, I, I've gotten this question submitted, and I get this one on my couch a lot when I'm when I'm doing a lot of uh, you know parent coaching, parenting work, couples therapy. Um, when I work with teens, you know I hear it all the time where the teenager feels like their parent favors one kid over the other. So there is some, um, some legitimate, interesting research around this. So here we go. Um, researchers found that they, follow, okay, they followed 384 families in which a pair of siblings was born within four years of each other. And they found that 74% of mothers and 70% of fathers reported preferential treatment toward one child. So while the research found that playing favorites definitely affected young, younger siblings' sense of self-worth, uh, the differential treatment didn't really seem to affect firstborns. In fact, the firstborns actually reported feeling that they were the preferred child more often than not. So I thought that was kind of interesting, too. So um, uh, the researcher, this uh, woman named Katherine Conger, she said, I was a little surprised by that fact. Our working hypothesis was that older, earlier born children would be more affected by perceptions of differential treatment due to their status as the older child. More power due to age or size or more time with parents in the family 
Um, but they did feel, you know, they did feel this, that they were the preferred child more often than not, but it wasn't as significant as I think as the study study said. But what was kind of interesting is it says that, um, um, that all of the kids, um, everyone, everyone feels that their brother or sister is getting a better deal, according to this researcher, which kind of means as a parent, I know that at times it can feel like you're in this lose-lose situation that no matter what you do, that that kid's perception is going to be that you favored their brothers and sisters. And a lot of times this goes back to some of the, if you've listened to any of the other earlier podcasts I've done about um, let's listen to our kids a little more, is uh, diving in there a little bit more with empathy and just understanding what that's like. That's the part where I can get some gold here in therapy is, um, you know, I want to, you know, the parent's going to say, you know, no, I don't or, or, you know, I used to feel that way too. Um, and, and, you know, I know as a parent, uh, it's, you know, you do want to say life's not fair and you want to throw out all those kind of things when they say it's not fair that this happens or this happens and that sort of thing. But a lot of times if you really stop and listen to your kid, um, there's some things that are, that are understandable is, the, is kind of why they do feel that you're, uh, you're siding a little more with one kid or the other. Um, but I, but you know, as far as, uh, from a parenting situation, I think if you really, um, look at it, uh, you know, ev- there's every parent is different. Every kid is different. And I think there's going to be, um, one day where you might click better with one of your kids and the next day it might be another, depending on what, what you, um, where you're at. Cause we all have our different personalities and different strengths and weaknesses. Now, what I would add is that I believe, and I'm not just saying this, but if you feel kind of a negative bias toward a child, then I would say double down on empathy um, toward that child. Uh, look, do a little bit of digging inward and kind of look at what uh, what is it that frustrates you, you know, and you hear a lot of times, man, they're just like me, you know, and that's part of what's frustrating. And so I just want them to not repeat the patterns that I have. But but we got to understand what their situation is. So find out more about them, try to learn about more about what they like and what they don't. And um and uh, then try to turn off a little bit of that uh, fixing and judgment part of your brain for a little bit. Remember, you're going to get to come back around and, and, and make your point. Um, I'm not saying you're trying to be their best friend. Um, but if you, if you look back to that first try to understand them before being understood, uh, then you're, gonna, you're going to have a better chance of not shutting them down. They won't, and, and they will feel like they can open up to you. So didn't mean to get on that soapbox. Uh, so let me put that one away as we kind of get on to the next question. Uh, this this person that asked us, by the way, I think I know it was. They just had some uh, initials here. But uh, the, they said, uh, and do therapists have a favorite client? So to all of my clients, former and current, who may be listening to this episode, I'm looking right directly into the microphone. The answer is yes, I do. And that client is you. How touching was that, right? Uh, let me hit this one really quick, too. I get one a lot about, um, especially with my work with pornography addiction, uh, people ask me often, is there, do I recommend a particular internet filtering software or, uh, you know, any kind of hardware devices? And so let me quickly touch on that. So uh, Disney has a nice product called The Circle. Um, there's also some um, some routers that, uh, that do a, a nice job filtering um, bad content, pornographic content. They update uh, the, uh, their settings often. And so those are those are good. Um, I have a lot of my clients that use a product called Covenant Eyes. That is one that I've recommended before, and I'm an accountability buddy with them. Covenant Eyes has the ability to uh, select people to be accountability buddies, and then they will get reports. They can get reports. It's I think it's daily, every three days, every week, and these reports will then um, let people know, you know, whoever is your accountability buddy know if there's been any flag searches or incidents or, you know, if you've kind of tried to find something that Covenant Eyes is now going to block. Now, I will tell you, the, 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 the concern I had in the past was that Covenant Eyes, you had to use their browser, whether it was on their phone, uh, on your phone or on the computer. 
And so I had a lot of people that would just say, you know what, when I wanted to do something bad, I would just use another browser. So what I really love is Covenant Eyes just did an update, and the update then um, everything. You're kind of now working if, uh, for geeks that are listening. You're on their own little virtual private network, so everything kind of goes through the Covenant Eyes um, eyes, the Covenant Eyes lens. And so uh, whether it's apps or, or browser activity or whatever it is on their browser or not, um, your accountability buddy is still going to find out if, the, if you've been looking at some things that are bad. And so I think that that's a good thing. And, and here's where <clears throat> I'm a slight bit biased now. I'm, I've actually, uh, I'm going to dive into that version of Covenant Eyes myself. And, uh, and I like it. So I'm using that myself and, uh, you know, still kind of getting the feel for it. But um, I did reach out to them. And, uh, you know, if you use the, you can use a coupon code, virtual couch, all one word. And then, um, then the virtual couch podcast gets a little, uh, a little bit of a commission um, back if for people who sign up using that coupon code. So I want to be very upfront with that, that I did chase a little bit of that filthy lucre there, but I really like the product now, Covenant Eyes. So I like this latest update. So I'm going to, I'll keep you posted on how that goes. Um, I will tell you a real quick funny story about being an accountability buddy. Um, I mean, there's some some kind of interesting stories where I'll have somebody come in here and they'll tell me that everything's been fine. They've had a great week, no temptation, no problem. And then I think sometimes they forget that I'll get a report two or three days later and then find out that there's, you know, 50 flag searches on Google or, you know, all these block sites that had gone on. And sometimes I'll just forward <clears throat> forward that accountability buddy email over to my client and say, hey, uh, Help me understand how you know this. This has kind of fallen into the everything's great. Um, but my best story about it was when you get this accountability buddy email, it will say, "All right, this uh, this particular um, search was flagged or that sort of thing." And usually, it's you know, it's you can tell it's a pretty bad, looks like a bad site just by the name of of the site, the website. But on this one, and then it says, you know, if you want to click on it and you know see what they did, you can. But then it throws up a bunch of warnings saying you may be viewing bad content. So I've never done that before. But one time I got one and the, the website I could tell was the name of a college that, uh, that I'm pretty familiar with. And so now all of a sudden I'm thinking uh, just harmlessly, I'm thinking, okay, there's got to be something kind of silly here. There's some glitch in the program. And so I go to click on it. And as soon as I click on the link, because I, you know, I want to see, uh, I wanna, I'm assuming this is going to be a funny story with this client. But then I think, oh my gosh, what if it's going to take me to some, you know, the deep recesses of some web, you know, some web account on this um, school university page. And I'm going to see all this bad stuff. And right as I'm clicking on it and, you know, and I click through the warning, then it brings up and it went to the school's intramural page and it had a, a picture of a very, you know, um, a very appropriately clad uh, woman playing soccer. So I don't, I don't know where the algorithm um, got off the tracks there, but it had identified this woman playing soccer as a pornographic image and uh, sent it, uh, flagged it for this user. So Turns out the good news was he wasn't doing anything uh, that he shouldn't have been doing. And I will, one more thing. So on the internet software, the reason I never have really endorsed anything before, I got, one, I got burned. I, I, <clears throat> I invested in a, invested sounds like a, a dramatic word, but I bought into a Kickstarter campaign for this router that looked amazing. I mean, they basically promised everything in the world, anything you have always wanted. It was basically like it'll protect your your home and your families and your networks and your friends and your and your TVs and your you know your computers, phones, tablets, everything, and it'll update constantly. And it'll you know I felt like it was going to do everything, make your kids breakfast and make their bed. I mean, I felt like this thing had every single cool feature in the world, and it looked super cool. And they you know we got these really neat people to design it, and I was all in, and I bought it. And then it's like you know kept getting these uh, emails, delay, delay, delay. It's coming, it's coming. And it's not only coming, but now it's going to do everything. You know, it'll even I don't teach your kids friendship. It's going to do every single thing. I'm getting so excited. I'm holding off. And, you know, people are asking me for recommendations. 
and then uh, then the thing finally comes. It looks amazing. I plug it in. Oh, well, you know, hey, it doesn't work. Um, get some emails out. Yeah, we kind of knew it wouldn't work, but uh, boy, we're so close. And then just leave it on overnight. It's going to update. It's going to update. And then after probably two or three weeks, uh, then it's kind of like, okay, hang tight. You know, we'll get back to you. And then I think a couple months later, I get the email that says, uh, you know, it's neat that we made this thing look so artistic because guess what? You've got a, now a piece of art that you can put on your uh, your desk. In other words, um, they were done. So the thing didn't work anymore. And now I'm so mad because I can't even find it. I thought it would be fun to have in my office, but I can't find it. So that was this router that went south. But the other reason was, I mean, in reality, what we want to do is we want to get to a point where we don't need the filtering software, right? We want to get to the point where if we have those temptations that we can kind of just move those thoughts through, um, stay present, focused, and and uh, and then not act upon those thoughts. When I'm working with my pornography clients or any kind of addictive behavior, you quickly identify what triggers are in your life. And triggers for things like pornography can be a lot of things. Um, one of the main ones is boredom. Boredom and, uh, and access. I mean, I'll call those crimes of opportunity. That's when somebody's home, they're home alone, and then there's, there's the trigger. So then what happens next is I was, you know, there's this trigger thought action. That's the um, that's the way this typically works. There's a trigger, and then the thought is that they can, you know, hey, the trigger, I'm home alone. Then the thought is I can act out. And then there's the behavior of actually doing that. So the key is putting distance between the thought and the action. I mean, that is where so much growth has had. So you've got a couple of things you can do. One is you can work mentally. You can do some cognitive things, um, which is the mindfulness, which is the, you know, learning how to change your relationship with the thoughts, recognizing that a thought is just a thought. You don't have to act on that thought. And, you know, and that's a whole other podcast where we're still working with uh, some um, you know, some addictive tendencies, uh, some of the neurological patterns of the brain, some of those kind of things that, uh, that are already in place for somebody who, who truly does um, have some impulse control issues or addiction issues. Uh, but you can also do behavioral things to put distance between thought and action. And that's where a lot of people start with some success of, um, I've had people do everything as, you know, um, simplistic as doing push-ups, uh, running up and down some stairs, getting out of the room. I had a guy one time that would just dial any 800 number and um, then just talk to whoever was trying to sell him whatever the product was. I mean, it was anything to kind of break that um, pattern. So there was trigger thought, and then it was putting distance between thought and action. So while you're doing some of those behavioral things and you're practicing on some of the mindfulness skills, or if you're working with a professional like myself, or if you're using the Path Back Recovery um, program that I offer, that's when you're kind of identifying a little more about, okay, where do these... uh, where do these triggers come from? And then, um, you know, why are, why is it so difficult sometimes to to put distance between thought and action? So, so a filtering software can do an amazing job just to put a little pause there, you know, to kind of give you pause. Um, but you still have to be doing the work to try to overcome something like this. Okay, let's go to uh, one more question. Uh, so this one's kind of a fun one too, and I think this is uh, alluding or to a future guest that I'm going to have. So here's the one. It says, I read your bio and I understand that you made a major career change later in life. And I have friends who have. I hate my job, but I'm terrified of changing my career. Any advice? So I get this one a lot. I really do. And and even if you go back to things like addiction, um, if you go to, you know, I do a ton of marriage counseling. If you look at a lot of the frustration that people have in their lives, I feel like, you know, a lot of those are feeling like they are in the wrong career or just kind of not satisfied with their life. And uh, and so some of that, um, you know, there, and there's a whole school of thought of, okay, learn how to water the grass that's in, you know, that you're standing on instead of looking at the grass always being greener somewhere else. So, and I am, I am huge on that. But at times, uh, people can be very frustrated and not really enjoy their jobs, their careers. And if we kind of go old school, you know, you can hear your, maybe your dad or your grandpa say, you know, I worked 40 years at the railroad. I hated every day of it, but that's what you do, you know? And 
and there's part of me that really feels like, uh, you know, that's too bad. Um, and, and I'm glad that they were able to, to do that. But boy, when you really are able to tap into some of the things that you're passionate about and, and that's part of your job, um, that old cliche of that, you know, you never work another day in your life, meaning that you're, you know, you're just kind of doing something you love. There's a lot of truth to that. So, so when I'm working with clients, I do want to at least explore that. So, um, so yeah, so I get that question a lot. And the more I talk with people, the more I realize that I think there's a few things going on here. And again, before I even go any further, uh, I'm going to have a good friend of mine who I met, I think, late middle school, but then definitely um, we loved him to death throughout high school. His name's Dr. C.K. Bray. Um, he's going to be on here in a few weeks, and he is a big deal in the world of career change. He hosts a very popular podcast called Career Revolution, and I would recommend you can listen to that on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app or however you normally listen to podcasts. Um, but uh, but he's going to come on, and, and he'll go into so much more detail on this topic. But here's what I see from my chair. So a lot of people aren't sure what they want to do when they're young or in high school or in college, but they have to at some point pick a major, and they head down that path. Uh, and once you're in that path, I mean, you're looking at internships, you're, you're talking to professors or other people that have um, that are maybe successful in that path, but uh, you know, you kind of get excited about it, maybe uh, graduate, and then you end up getting a job in that field. And then I've worked with, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people who then feel stuck. They kind of feel stuck on a particular career path. Uh, and if you really break it down, they weren't ever really passionate about that career path to begin with. And um, and I, ha- you know, so there's there's already that component where then people, if you feel like you're already stuck and you've invested all of this time into a career or a degree, then I want to normalize that. Of course, that's that's going to make sense that you feel that way. But then it's kind of like, what do you do with those feelings? You know, do you do you kind of embrace it? Do you learn more or, or jump into your career with uh, with both feet? Or do you start to kind of look and explore other things that you might be able to do? Because um, I think a lot of us have these all or nothing thoughts where, you know, they kind of think in terms of, okay, if I don't like my job, um, there's no way I can just jump into another career. And the reality is you don't have to make that jump. Um, you know, you can start to uh, to explore what, what the other career would look like. And well, let me get to that in a second. Let me, let me kind of touch on the other things I see and then, then I'll kind of sum that up. So a lot of people also, I feel like, are doing something that their parents or grandparents or somebody in their lives encouraged them to do or told them that they would be good at. And so there's a lot going on with that alone. So they worry that they will let a person down. Um, you know, they they feel like they can't go open up to anybody about not enjoying their their career because I think a lot of people just make that assumption that anybody they're going to talk to is going to say, hey, it's normal to feel that way. You just hang in there. You're going to get used to it. And there is truth to that. There really is. I mean, you know, we don't want to just make these impulsive decisions. Um, but I think it's important to be able to talk to somebody and uh, be able to have somebody objectively listen and say, okay, tell me what you're feeling. What are the things you like or don't like? And kind of note that. Because, um, and, and again, that's why I'm a therapist, right? I love that. There's so much power there in being able to have this, you know, somebody that you can bounce these thoughts and worries and ideas against and not have them just shut them down immediately uh, and not have them just immediately come in and try to fix them, but start to see, okay, what do you want to do with that? Or what are the challenges there? What are some goals we can set? So yeah, so a lot of people feel like they're going to let other people down. So now we're kind of back into that fixing and judgment category, you know, and I can, I have, I'm, I'm telling you, I have so many examples um, that I, that come to mind. I'll just go with a quick one is a client I had who didn't want to be a doctor, you know, and, uh, and he happened to have parents, mom and a dad that both were doctors. And he just said, Hey, I'm, I'm not cut out for this. And of course there, they just immediately, yes, you are. Don't be, don't be crazy. Don't be silly. Don't throw this all away. Um, hang in there. Everybody feels that way, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I worked with him for quite a while and I, and eventually, 
um, he did kind of move on into um, some more kind of uh, entrepreneurial ventures and is just extremely, extremely happy now. Um, I hear from him about every year or so. And, uh, you know, so it was, it was a good thing. And I've had a couple of attorneys that I've worked with, too, that get that law degree and then don't actually enjoy the process of, uh, of practicing law. But then again, feel like, man, I've, I've done, you know, I've got this law degree and I've had a couple of those do some really amazing things in business and in helping others. And, uh, and you know, I think that they're pretty grateful that they were able to make a change. But I've also worked with a lot of people, too, who have been able to just kind of express their frustrations or their, their desires in their career. And they've been able to kind of find their own lane or little niche or that sort of thing. So I don't want you to just think I'm saying if you, if you feel a little bit uneasy, you know, jump ship. But, uh, but I think being able to explore that is pretty important. Um, I got to tell this one too. There was a time long ago where I worked with a teen who wanted to do something to say in the arts. And, um, this teen's parents were both uber professional. They <laughs> just had a little funny thought in my head uh, to a lot of the millennials or younger folks listening, uber, prof- uber professionals, um, people are thinking, Oh wow, they both work for Uber, but that just meant they're like really professional, had nothing to do with the ride sharing company. Um, but in this scenario, the, you know, the parents, in essence, wanted me to fix the teen. They wanted me to convince the teen that, you know, this artistic venture was crazy. And instead, I'm, I'm dropping into these, uh, these EFT, emotionally focused therapy skills that I've talked about in previous podcasts. And hey, how about we hear the teen out? And how about we turn off that? Yeah, but that's dumb. Or, you know, but they need to realize that. And let's just listen a little bit. And that one turned out pretty good. Um, that teen is doing something that's pretty impressive. And, and I'm, I'm kind of excited to just give that one a little time to grow and, and maybe I'm going to be able to say I knew this person then. But uh, boy, that was that one's kind of neat too. And that's somebody who felt like they were going to let their parents down. So I'm grateful that they were able to have that conversation. And sometimes that encouragement can be a good thing though. I have to tell you too, just have me think of a quick story. Um, when I was in high school, I won a student body election and I was student body secretary. And you better believe I, I ran on the Tony the Tiger is great um, posters and platform, which I can't believe now. Uh, but hey, it worked. So then I had this opportunity. It allowed me to do the announcements. So I got to do the morning announcements. And I really loved it and would have people come on. Uh, um, I still remember a good friend of mine, Todd Dana. We'd come on and do these skits all the time. Um, we would do skits. And that was back in the heyday of Saturday Night Live skits. And I don't know, Hans and Franz and the church lady. And and so, you know, every pep rally, we're going to beat every school, whatever, had a had a skit to it. Um, but I loved doing it. And uh, people started telling me that uh, they, they thought it was good or they liked them. And, you know, so then they said, you should be a public speaker. You should go into broadcasting. And so I'm like, yeah, I should. So that led me to do more of them, which led me to taking a speech class in college. And I think that really a lot of that did set the stage for uh, any time I would think, you know, what do I want to do? I would say, well, I'm, I like speaking. Uh, and a lot of that came from just it did come from some encouragement, which was good. And uh, all right, I've got my little stopwatch going here. I am. Uh, let me just. OK, 32 minutes in. So let me do. I got to tell a story. Um, when I was in college, again, this was back in 1989. So the internet was, I don't know if you go back and do the research, maybe it was around. I remember one of my professors actually the next year or two years later um, trying to convince us why we wanted email. And I remember thinking this is pretty ridiculous. It'll never work. Um, so maybe this was right before that. But it was 1989. I'm at Kansas State University and I take a speech class. And uh, so, you know, I don't remember how you researched back then. I think you went to a library. Maybe you looked at magazines or Oh, microfish. There was uh, there was that. And kids listening had nothing to do with um, aquatic life. Uh, but I remember um, I needed to do a, a quick speech and I didn't prepare for it. And so I remember writing down some notes on a three by five card and I decided I would do a speech on why breakfast was important because, I, you know, there were still those cliches around most important meal of the day, that sort of thing. 
what I was lacking was the actual research behind it. So um, I made up a place called the Kellogg's Breakfast Institute, which, you know, that actually could be a real thing. I've never really looked before. Uh, and then I made up a whole bunch of facts. I mean, my, my presentation was fact-based, had some quotes from uh, maybe even uh, Dr. Kellogg or something like that. And uh, just thought, I just got to get through this, this class. So I give the speech. I apparently do okay. So my class um, votes my speech as the winning speech. And so I get to go on to some all-university speech competition uh, at Kansas State. And if I won that, then I was going to move on into some, I think I was going to go to Wichita or something like that and compete in some bigger contest. So I was kind of panicked. I had mixed results, right? I mean, I wanted to win. I was competitive and I was pretty excited about my speech, but then it would hit me that, you know, what if this thing gets, uh, what if I get on some national stage and then they're going to look up the Kellogg's Breakfast Institute so they can invite Mr. Kellogg in to shake my hand. So I kind of panicked a little bit. So I really did semi kind of throw the the speech at the next level. I, I think I purposely stumbled a little bit on some things. And um, and the problem is I'm a horrible actor. So I don't know if they just thought that I was kind of a clown or what, but I did not win at the university level, which I think was probably a good thing. So, but back to the point though, a lot of people are going to feel like they're going to be judged um, if they're talking about career change or that they won't be good at something else. And here's where I just say, just start to explore it. You know, let those ideas kind of grow in your mind. Give them a little bit of water and start to investigate things. A lot of times I have clients that will talk about career change, but then all of a sudden it's almost as if they're, you know, reaching in their backpack and pulling out a crystal ball because they're going into all these reasons why it wouldn't work and some pretty silly reasons. Like, well, if I start to look at this new career and then I start, you know, going uh, and then if I take some classes about it, then then this is probably going to happen and then I'm going to have to, you know, and then I'll end up being probably the best and then I'm going to have to move to some other place and I'm, you know, that sort of thing. And so I better not do it. And I always think, wow, that is, uh, you know, that is some pretty crystal ball like thinking. But so just, just explore. Um, I've had, again, I've had, I love my job and I get to talk to so many people that have done so many neat things. And a lot of it starts with an idea. And then, uh, and then I've, I've actually um, encouraged or, or helped people uh, go have lunch with somebody that's in their field or interview somebody that's in their field. I've had, a, I've had two situations where some very, very well-respected, um, successful people in other fields have, have pulled me aside, one just for a talk and one for a lunch. And they wanted to know what it, what does it take to to get you know to be a therapist and how much time is that and um, and what do I like about it and what do I not like about it and uh, because and I was grateful and I, neither one of them went on to do it um, but I thought that was pretty neat that uh, they took the time and when I was actually looking at career change out of the software industry uh, I knew that I wanted to be a therapist I looked at going back to school and for a brief second I got a little intimidated by that. And I went and met with a guy who was in a different field altogether, and uh, he kind of gave me a little bit of this advice too, because he had also changed careers, and he had just said, "Come on, you, you know, yeah, I got to, I got to go for it. You got to look at that." So I remember at one point saying, "Okay, um, two years is going to come, whether you know I, I go back and get my master's or not. So um, let's let's do it." So go back and uh, and I got my master's in counseling, and then that started this whole path, which I am so grateful for. So, uh, so, so there's the answer to that question. So how did I do that? Um, the career change, it, you know, just started to go on an idea. It was scary to me. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I'm so grateful that I did. And so if you're looking at, um, career change, if you're not very satisfied in your career, go talk to somebody. There are some job coaches some professionals. Um, if you, you can interview a therapist and ask them if they do a lot with, you know, I think the, the stereotyped, uh, phrase is what midlife crisis, um, but just, you know, career change or, or change of life, phase of life issues. And, uh, and you can start to really explore what you, uh, what you might want to do if you're married. Um, you can listen to the podcast on couples communication. 
because I and and no doubt there's going to be some little bit of fear and worry, especially if your you know your financial situation is kind of set or tight or that sort of thing. And but being able to you be able to express what you what you really feel or would love to do, and having a spouse who is going to listen and have maybe a little bit of empathy there, but still get to express themselves and let let them know your their fears and worries. And that's uh, you know that's what I'm so grateful for when I kind of presented this to my spouse long ago, that she and I were able to talk and openly kind of come up with a plan, and uh, to be able to help me get back to school and still take care of things at home and that sort of thing. So, just grateful for that. So, so what is your passion? I mean, give that a little thought. Uh, I've always loved watching people, and I love trying to understand how people tick. I used to have a subscription to Biography Magazine. I love watching. Uh, um, I love watching and reading biographies and watching documentaries and just really understanding um, what is at the core of, of how people work. So what do you find yourself doing a lot of times? Uh, you know, is it things about uh, cars? Is it things about planes? You know, what is it? Uh, um, history? Who knows? But uh, take a look at that about really what your passions are and, and then look at people that are in that field. Um, I've had a chance to work with people that do everything. I mean, you know, policemen, doctors, lawyers, uh, business owners, um, you know, geologists, arborists, uh, you name it. And people that are just, they love what they do. And I think that's a big component to happiness. Um, on that last, you know, lastly on that note, uh, I've had a couple of clients then go do ride-alongs, ride-alongs with cops, uh, ride-along at a hospital. Um, you can you can really get in there and see what a profession's like and get to talk to people. Okay, uh, thank you so much for this edition of the Monday Mailbag. Now let's uh, see if I can get this out today on Monday. If you have questions, you can email them to contact at pathbackrecovery.com or you can go to um, the website that I have all of my podcasts on. That is the virtualcouch.xyz website. There's also down there a contact form if you want to suggest a guest or if you have questions that you love to hear me answer on the podcast, please send them. My thanks as always to the wonderful, talented Aurora Florence for the song that you're about to hear. It's her song, It's Wonderful. And I will see you next time on The Virtual Couch. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind It's wonderful Elastic waste and rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most It's wonderful
Develop distance, don't explode Allow the understanding through To heal the legs and hearts you broke The pain is more